This is They Create Worlds, Episode 8, Birth of the Japanese Game Center. Welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Jeff, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hello. Today we wanted to go into the evolution of the Japanese Game Center. Going over, I'm not even actually sure what we're going to cover, because we haven't really sat down and outlined this one. But I do know that somehow it relates to us back here in the States, because a lot of things from Japan have really come to affect us back in the States. Exactly. For a long period of time, the Japanese industry was really the driver in both the console and the arcade game space. Home computers, obviously, in the United States were very much driven what was going on locally and occasionally from Europe, with Japan having a minimal impact, though contrary to what some people believe, Japan did have a very vibrant computer game sector in the 1980s that I hope we'll discuss in some later episode, but it didn't really affect us so much here in the United States. But starting with Space Invaders in 1978, really hitting the U.S. in 1979, the Japanese arcade output became very central to what was going on in the American arcade as well. And of course, after the Great Crash and the revival of the home industry around the Nintendo Entertainment System, the Japanese industry was really the primary driver in the console space as well. So I think it's interesting to see kind of how this Japanese industry emerged in the 1970s and even earlier, and also how their industry evolved. Because while in the United States, arcades became really, really big in the early 1980s and then really, really fell off in subsequent years. In Japan, it was a little bit more of a gradual decline, and there was a little more going on in that space than in the United States. If I recall correctly, when we were talking about the arcades in the United States, or actually more when we were talking about arcades in relation to Sega a couple episodes ago, Sega started laying some of the groundwork that eventually led to the arcade. Do you think that's fair? That's true. Sega was one of the important primary movers in creating a Japanese arcade industry after World War II. Before World War II, they had just started creating a form of arcade industry in Japan. And of course, that was very quickly cut short by the war. And As many people, I think, are aware, one of the primary ways that they started embracing point-operated entertainment in Japan was through the game of Pachinko. Really, Pachinko. That's right, which is still an incredibly big deal today in Japan. And before the war, that being World War II, some of these machines, some Bagatelle machines, started coming in. We talked a little bit about Bagatelle and Pinball and kind of how one evolved from the other and the differences between them in our previous episode on arcades. And Bagatelle hit Japan sometime in the 1920s. Now, 
the sourcing on this is all very vague. I don't know if there are better sources in the Japanese language. There may be in English language sources. There's stories that have been carried down about where some of these games came from, and it's just hard to say where those came from, whether those came from good primary sources or not. But the traditional rendering of this is that a children's toy version of Pachinko, like a tabletop kind of version of Bagatelle, I should say, not Pachinko, first appeared in Japan around 1924, imported into the country. Mm -hmm. And this was a table called Corinthian. That was just the name of the Bagatelle table. It was a standard Bagatelle table. They just named it Corinthian for whatever reason. Exactly. That was just the name of the game. And even today, my understanding is that pinball games in Japan are often referred to as the Corinth game or, you know, derived from the Corinth game. So there must be some element of truth to that story, whether mm -hmm. it was actually 1924, whether that was really the first one that came in or just one of several. I don't know. But since that term Corinth game has remained active in Japan, there must be some element of truth to that story, I would think. Yeah, I'm surprised that there was really any semblance of an arcade with Pachinko, with Bagatelle, because you don't really see Japan as being modern, at least in my knowledge, until after World War II when everything got rebuilt. Well, the Meiji Restoration, which was the period when the emperor regained kind of his primacy and political affairs and ended the shogunate, took place in 1868. Okay. And this was the beginning of modernization in Japan. So it really took place before before even World War One. It took place a few decades before that. Exactly. Japan was becoming very much a powerhouse in technological terms, in industrial terms, in military terms, starting from that 1868 Meiji Restoration. Mm -hmm. Obviously... They kind of had to, in a way, start all over again after World War II, just because the country was so thoroughly devastated by World War II. And I guess that's why me and a lot of other people sort of view that Japan didn't come into the modern era until the rebuild from World War II, because they were effectively so devastated that nothing survived. Sure. So there was a lot of mixing of old and new. There was still a lot of traditional class structure. There was still a lot of traditional building most people were still living in wood buildings with tatami mats and rice paper doors and all of that kind of thing mm -hmm. they weren't modernizing all aspects of society but they were very much an industrial nation they were they had a very modern education system they had a very modern and competent military they were making technological advances so they were kind of in between the old world and the new world but when it came to technology they were very comfortable with what was starting to come into the country in terms of modern things. And so Bagatelle was one of these things that happened to be coming in in the 1920s, again, a few decades after it had really started hitting in the United States with uh, Montague Redgrave's game in 1871. But it was coming in now, and these were not coin-operated at this point because we're not talking pinball yet, pinball as we know, didn't come in until 1930, 1931. Mm -hmm. But we are talking about a game with a plunger and balls and pins and scoring holes. So these games were coming in, and they were mostly for children at first. Right. 
They were appearing in candy shops and similar kind of establishments that catered to children. Sort of like how you can go into uh, most low-end restaurants these days and they have little games for kids and they just put their quarter in, do a little game, and they get a little prize or candy at the end. Sure, that's exactly correct. What happened, though, is that they did start to be played by adults as well. They started to become a popular pastime because they were a prize game, essentially. Not straight gambling, not like a slot machine where it automatically pays out to you, but play a game, get the ball in some holes, maybe win a prize, that kind of thing. Stuffed animal, a little trinket, something. Yeah, probably little trinkets and stuff. Probably not stuffed animals at this point in time in the 1920s. But yes, that's that's exactly correct. So they started appearing in Japanese market stalls as well, and shops. And, of course, Japan's space is always at a premium. Mm-hmm. It's just a very crowded country, especially in the urban environment. Back then, just as it is now, obviously, Tokyo much smaller then, but still huge by the standards of Japan. So the marketplace was not a convenient place to put a bagatelle table, which is just like a modern pinball table is a horizontal device. Now, smaller back then than a modern pinball table, but still a horizontal device. And so at some point, and it's hard to say exactly when, as far as I know, no one has pinpointed the first pachinko machine, but at some point, an entrepreneur or several entrepreneurs had the idea to save space by putting on its side and making it a vertical game instead mm-hmm. of a horizontal game, which is, of course, what Pachinko still is today. Yeah, I actually own a Pachinko machine that one of my uh, uncles brought back from Korea, I think, and it is upright, and you've got the entire mechanism there shooting balls up and going down pins, and it was designed, I think, originally to be mounted on a wall. Mm-hmm. There's actually some... Uh, there's a few little levers and switches that you can reach sort of behind it in order to pop up certain parts of it so that it would swing out. And there's actually a little key that I don't have, but you can open it up from the back. But there's a key that was originally designed to make it swing open so you could service it once it was mounted on a wall. Hmm. Very interesting. And that does make sense, certainly. Wall-mounted games, again, a great way to save space because we're talking about a situation where space is at a premium. That was the big change, and that necessitated also replacing the plunger, which doesn't really work for a vertical situation. Not really. With a lever instead in order to launch the balls, a lever that you just press down on to launch the balls. The lever you push down on, and then you immediately release. You don't gently let it up, otherwise it's not going to launch. It's spring-activated, so you almost like you whack it down, and then it goes back up. And the little mechanism there, based on a spring, loads a ball into sort of like a gear thing and launches it up the ramp. You can do crazy things like preload two or three balls and then launch it, and that can affect how the balls, when they start coming down. If you want to start playing around with it, instead of going all the way down, you can go like quarter power, half power, and just try to play around with, okay, I want it to get more on the left-hand side of the playing field. I want it more on the right side. I want it more in the center. And that's all based on how much you mess with the lever. There's still a lot of random chance with the pins, but you can sort of dictate at least which general quadrant of, say, three you want it to start going down. Absolutely. So they probably melded Bagatelle with certain gambling games in Europe in order to come up with this final kind of pachinko design. And again, at least in English, this is not something I can point to and say this is definitely true. 
But at the time in Europe, there were very, very strict gambling laws and mm -hmm. very, very strict laws on automatic gambling machines like slot machines. So you did not typically in this period find slot machines very often in the United Kingdom. Instead, they had other types of gambling games that required a little bit more player interaction just as a way to try to make them seem more skill-based, even though they were still essentially games of chance. They were slightly less games of chance than a regular slot machine, one-armed bandit, but not right. really that much. A lot of these games were based on this model called the Allwin model, A-L-L-W-I-N, which was basically a vertically-oriented glass-enclosed cabinet, and you had a lever, just like the lever on a pachinko machine, to launch a steel ball, and then you would usually have kind of troughs, spiral troughs that the ball, or spiral lanes, I should say, rather than troughs, spiral lanes that the ball would fit into and kind of spin round, 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 round until it kind of landed in a hole. Huh. And that was a, a kind of gambling game that was very popular at the time in Europe. So you have the pins and the basic setup of a bagatelle machine, but then kind of combined with the vertical orientation and the lever and even some of the spiral lane stuff, because many early pachinko machines would have these lanes around the outside. Most of the machine was based around pins, but you would right. have little lane tracks because you kind of need those to help corral the ball when you have a vertical orientation like that. So you bring in these levers and these lanes and this vertical orientation of the all-win, mix it with Bagatelle, and essentially you have Pachinko. And that name comes from the sound of the balls, the clicking sound of the balls. And the Japanese onomatopoeia for that is Pachi Pachi. Pachi Pachi. Uh-huh. I'm not sure if they pronounce it Pachi Pachi or Paki Paki because I don't really know Japanese, but it's P-A-C-H-I hyphen P-A-C-H-I. That's the sound that the balls make, according to Japanese. Hmm. And then the word ko is the Japanese word for ball. Okay. So pachinko is essentially the ball that is making this clicking sound as it moves clinky, through the clinky, pins. Clinky, clinky, ball. Pretty much. That's exactly what pachinko means. Well, <laughs> I shouldn't say exactly Japanese to English translation always having a certain air of impreciseness to it. But that's basically, basically what, what pachinko means. means. The first dedicated pachinko parlor opened in the city of Nagoya in Japan in 1930. Mm -hmm. And they became very popular. There was always kind of an element of gambling to it. Gambling is outlawed in Japan, and we're not talking about a direct payout, like in a payout pinball machine like Bally was making in the 1930s, or a bingo machine in the 1950s. But this idea that you can earn extra balls by getting your ball in a scoring hole. If your ball goes in a scoring hole, a ball then is ejected by the machine. Right. And you can turn in your leftover balls for little prizes. Or, in a less reputable establishment, maybe you go around the corner to the special window that isn't in any way part of the establishment and get your cash money prize or your more fancy prize over there. So you go to the special window that is next door that is totally separate because the buildings aren't connected at kids. <laughs> that's and right. that's where I give you my 200 yen and you will give me to, let's say, 20 balls. And then I go back in, I play pachinko, I somehow win 
30 balls, and I go back out to me like, I have some useless metal, friend. Would you like to buy them from me? Oh, sure, I'll scrap that for you. Here, I'll give you 10 yen a ball. And then you leave with 300 yen, and then you're happier. Something like that. So Pachinko has always been very much a gray area game. Obviously, children do play it just for the fun of it, but there's always been kind of this gambling element, and there's always been this organized crime, this Yakuza element that has always been hovering around the Japanese industry a little more than in the American industry. Right. Pachinko is just starting to get popular by 1937, which is when Japan goes to war with China. It's really the beginning of World War II for Japan. Mm -hmm. We in the West tend to date the beginning of World War II from the invasion of Poland in 1939, but really at that point, Japan and China had already been at war for a couple of years and Japan's World War II really started in 1937. And at that point, Japan is a very resource-poor nation because it's an island nation. It has to import almost all of its resources. Yeah, pretty much. So all resources were needed for the war effort. So in 1937, production of new pachinko machines completely halted just as the game was starting to hit popularity. 1938, they go even further and they close all the pachinko parlors. We don't want you gambling, put your mind to the war effort, or who knows, maybe they wanted to scrap some of the machines for metal and parts. It very well could be. I mean, that's very realistic that they might have decided there's all that metal hanging around, and why don't we close all the pachinko parlors and confiscate all the machines? I mean, that's as good a theory as any. And I'm sure there's someone out there that knows the answer to this, but that's just not something I've come across. And if you're one of those people, let us know. So pachinko parlors are closed, start of the war. They come back after the war, and this is when Pachinko becomes huge. Because after the war, there is rationing on everything. Everything mm -hmm. is in short supply. Everything from basic essentials like food and clothing all the way up to things like cigarettes and soap. I mean, everything is rationed. Pachinko is a prize game. And right. so after the war, you would often, you know, you're not gambling for money, but you could win cigarettes. You could win soap. I've even heard you could win, like, vegetables sometimes. You could win basic necessities of life or comfort so that you can get by and do better off. And if all it takes is me playing a little bit of pachinko and maybe wagering my vegetable for a handful of pachinko balls and then I have the chance to get soap or something else, that's really good. So pachinko became ingrained in Japanese culture at that point, has remained ingrained ever since. It's had its ups and downs, better periods, worse periods. The game has changed. It's evolved. For instance, before the war, it was just get a ball in a hole, receive a ball in return. After the war, they went to a 10-ball system and then even a 15-ball system, just because that makes the payouts more exciting. They added electricity. You had lights. You had what they called tulip pockets, which are these little pockets that kind of open up and then close once you get the ball in them. I believe oh, your machine has some of those in yeah, it. Yeah, it does. It, it's, uh, if you get a ball in, they open up. If they, Then it's easier to get a ball in than once you get the ball in, it closes back up again. Exactly. As a little kid, I would open up the case, and then I would just put little balls in each one of those to open it up for me, then close the case. <laughs> Interesting. So you were cheating, but thankfully you weren't playing for money. So the Yakuza weren't going to come around and start, you know, removing your fingers because you were cheating at their games. No, no. <laughs> I was cheating as a small seven-year-old kid playing in 
the basement. <laughs> That's right. So, you know, Pachinko's had its ups and downs, better times, worse times, but it's kind of always been part of Japanese culture since. But it is more of a gambling-focused thing. It is much closer in kind to the American casino business mm-hmm. than it is to the American amusement business. So Pachinko, for our purposes here, is important because this is the game that really establishes coin-operated machinery okay. in Japan. But it's not strictly part of the amusement industry, per se. It's what makes it accessible to the public at large because, hey, I'm already used to giving quarters for playing Pachinko. 100 yen coins. 100 yen coins. Quarters, culture thing. 100 yen coins for Pachinko, and then why not do 100 yen coins for entertainment as these more entertaining arcade things come in? Absolutely. And again, the Japanese arcade industry almost started before World War II, but it was so close to the beginning of World War II that just when it was getting going, it was all shut down for the war. And the real starting point, there were probably coin-operated mutoscopes and song machines and the like in Japan in the late 19th and early 20th century, just as there were in the United States. Mm -hmm. I doubt it was as widespread or as popular, but I'm sure they were there. The real starting point was in 1931 and a fellow named Kaichi Indo. Kaichi Indo. That's his name. At this point, Japan is very much modernizing and in Tokyo and other prominent cities, the department store is starting to come into vogue. And so you have these department stores building these great vertical structures, of course, because in Japan, space is always at a premium. And you can always go up. Exactly. You can always go up. Then, because space is also at a premium, you make that last floor, you make your rooftop into something, too. So there's often on these department stores, the rooftop area is a garden space, a green space, Mm -hmm. because there's no room for parks at ground level. So you put your parks on top of your roofs. And you go up there and walk around. Exactly. And Kaichi Endo was a purveyor of signs, like electric signs, vending machines, those kind of contraptions in the 20s and early 30s. And he had the idea, why don't we take part of that green space, part of that open air exhibition space that the department stores have on their top floor, and why don't we turn that into a full-fledged recreation area. This would be both coin-operated entertainment, like peep shows and shooting games and the like, but also other activities like archery or roller skating, even bicycling, kind of physical activities, also peep shows, strength testers, coin-operated, very similar to what the Chester brothers did with their Sportsland concept in the late 1920s and early 1930s. Okay. And in fact, oh. Kaichi Endo chose to name his first venue, which was at the Matsuya department store in the Asakusa district of Tokyo. He decided to name that Sportsland. Really? And I imagine it must be because of the Sportslands in New York City. I don't have proof of that. I don't have the documentation that shows a direct connection there. I find it hard to believe that that would be a coincidence. That's an interesting coincidence. Is there any chance that there was a greater interaction between Japan and New York at that time? or See, not that I'm aware of in a, in a specific sense, but as I said, I don't see how that could possibly be a coincidence. I assume that somehow Mr. Endo 
partially was inspired by what was going on in New York City with the Sportsland Arcades there because they have two different entrepreneurs on halfway around the world from each other come up with the exact same name at nearly the exact same time for a very similar type of venue. Just that. And two very different cultures, too. Two very different cultures. That stretches the bounds of coincidence way too much. So I assume he was at least partially inspired by the Sportsland concept that the Chester Brothers had inaugurated in New York City about a year before that. Okay. So you were starting to see some coin-operated equipment in the rooftop gardens of department stores before World War II. That ended with World War II, and immediately after World War II, there was nothing going on with coin-operated amusements in Japan, because quite simply, there was nothing going on in amusements in Japan, They period. were just spending all their effort just trying to live and trying to survive. Six and a half days a week. Working. That was the work week, six and a half days a week for next to nothing, for just enough money to basically get your barest essentials. There was no time for leisure. There was no money for leisure. There were no buildings left to have your leisure in in many places. They're they're rebuilding everything. Sony Corporation, which was started after the war, they started their first facility was a bombed out building. I mean, (laughs) there was no infrastructure. There was... Nothing. So, of course, there's no coin-operated amusement industry in Japan immediately after the war because there's no amusement. Yeah, and just imagine the how thirsty people were for some kind of entertainment, especially if their entire life is shattered to the point where I'm working six and a half days a week, and I am working and toiling probably all day, and I can barely get, say, a cup full of rice from me and my family. Right. And the Japanese have always been industrious people, have always been a people to put work first. So they were able to cope in this situation better than many cultures, I think, would have been able to just because they had that determination. And of course, Japan did rebuild itself with no small help from additional economic development, uh, additional economic assistance from the United States during the war with Korea, when the United States realized that we really did need an ally in that part of the world that was not communist after China turned communist Mm -hmm. in order to advance our interests. So obviously Japan came back and as a hardworking people, amusement is not something that is looked upon highly for adults. Obviously children are mostly allowed to be children when they're not spending six days a week in school and Sundays at cram school. It's it's gotten worse in Japan, I think, in the last couple of decades. But, you know, generally speaking, children are allowed to be children, and children are allowed, allowed to have entertainment activities. Adults, not so much. It's kind of frowned upon in Japan. It's not serious. You should leave the trappings of childhood behind. You shouldn't be playing video games. You shouldn't be out there having fun and entertainment. You should be working you should be socializing and being an adult and producing for the, the society. Exactly. And, you know, today, this term otaku for somebody who is kind of very tech savvy and very nerdy, it doesn't have quite the same negative connotation in Japan today as it used to. But when that word first came about, you know, a lot of Americans that are in Japan, Japanese culture kind of take pride in that name, otaku. But when that word was first widely used in Japan, that was not a compliment. 
And the stereotypical otaku was kind of the, kind of like the stereotypical American nerd in their parents' basement, except on steroids. Even filthier, even creepier, even more disgusting, even more worthless. You know, kind of that really negative stereotype. I know we sort of have nerds as being kind of cool these days, but and really I think that came up with uh, Alex and my generation where nerds sort of fell into vogue because of the technology that they were able to present and really advance society. But think back or ask your parents or something how life was for anyone who was considered a nerd or an egghead or however you want to describe it, who was really interested more in technical stuff as opposed to interacting with society back in the 50s, back in the 60s, back in the 40s, 30s, so on. It was really, really frowned upon, and they were ridiculed. Sure, and I think in Japan it was even worse, and it wasn't even necessarily that they were technologically savvy these otaku or these stereotypical otaku i'm of course talking about a stereotype i'm not talking about how people actually are i'm talking about how a culture perceived a certain stereotype right otaku were not even necessarily tech savvy per se they may just be interested in other childish quote unquote childish things like manga or anime or or whatnot and this was a very negative connotation so japan kind of frowned upon adults participating in this entertainment, but it was okay for children to participate in this entertainment. But, I mean, adults are allowed to have entertainment, too. Gambling is different for whatever reason. I mean, pachinko is something that adults are allowed to do, or mahjong, which is another common game used in a gambling setting in Japan. Uh, Certainly karaoke is something that everyone I think is expected to do in Japan. (laughs) It's not that they don't have any kind of pastimes. It's not like it's all work all the time, but not games. And in the United States, at times, games have been targeted at older people. In the Great Depression, older people were going to game centers, though after the war, it was more targeted at children. And you've had kind of this up and down relationship. In Japan, it's mostly targeted at children, though I think a growing percentage of adults play games in Japan too. It's still not nearly the same as in the United States. So that's a long way of saying that everybody's working. Amusements in general are frowned upon, especially for older people. And so there really wasn't a lot of impetus to bring coin operated amusements back. They finally started coming in because of the Americans. And we mm-hmm. talked about this in our Sega episode, so just kind of to recap very briefly, is that you have American military bases building up because of the Korean War. You have various types of coin-operated machines, particularly slot machines and crane games, becoming illegal in the United States thanks to the Johnson Act. And so you have American distributors moving much of their operation to Japan to cater to American soldiers there because that's a place where they can dump all of these slot machines that they can no longer use in the United States. And as the slot machines come over, so too do the jukeboxes come over, and so too do some of the pinball machines and whatnot come over. So that's where it starts. It starts with jukeboxes and slot machines and to a lesser, much lesser extent, coin-operated games on American military bases. Mm -hmm. Slot machines don't make it into the Japanese economy because gambling for money is illegal in Japan. 
So the slot machines don't make it out. But the first manifestation of coin-operated entertainment in Japan, other than Pachinko, which is obviously going on all along here, right, is the jukebox. And basically what happens is a fellow named Michael Kogan, who was the a Russian. A Russian. And that's an interesting story in and of itself, which I guess I can go into briefly. Yeah, I mean, you don't think of a Russian going into Japan. It's sort of like two completely different worlds. It's almost like Russia and Japan are sort of as divorced as, let's say, South Africa and Japan. <laughs> Well, though, of course, since Russia spans an entire continent, it's actually very close to Japan, and they've actually had border disputes over certain islands, and they fought a war in 1904 and 1905 against each other for dominance in the Pacific. But well, I know what I, you're saying. Yeah, in in the typical American mind, it's not sure. sort of viewed that way. So Michael Kogan's family was Jewish, and Michael Kogan was born right at the start of the Russian Civil War. That's when the communists took over. And so a lot of Russians fled to Manchuria, which is region of China, Northeast China. It was its own independent country for a long time before that. But for these purposes, it's part of Northeast China. And a lot of them fled there because there had always been kind of a mixing of the culture in cities like Harbin in Manchuria, which are right on the border there between Russia and China. Uh, so a lot of people fled there. Then in 1931, Japan occupies all of Manchuria. That's kind of their first blow against the Chinese when they start slowly parceling up Chinese territory. Mm -hmm. So now Manchuria is controlled by the Japanese. And there were a small group of Japanese uh, military leaders that believed the current, at the time, current conspiracy theories about Jews having complete control over all world finance and all world media and being this kind of shadowy group behind everything going on in the world, which is, of course, nonsense. But there were certain people that believed that. And... As a result, Russian Jews that were now in Manchuria, like Michael Kogan, were given certain privileges within the country that they wouldn't necessarily normally otherwise get. Hmm. Now, these were lower-level military officers. They were led by a colonel. And ultimately, this colonel could never get mainstream acceptance of his ideas to harness this Jewish capability to control finance and media to actually get off the ground. So there was no widespread harnessing of this but and then of course once they signed the uh, the common term pact the axis with germany then obviously some of that anti-semitic stuff while the japanese were not primarily involved in what was going on in europe with that that also led to naturally turning away from this idea of harnessing the jewish people for the good of the country but because of this there was a brief period where russian jews were actually allowed to participate in areas of Japanese life. And Michael Kogan actually received his college degree from Waseda University, which is one of the most prestigious universities in Japan. Huh. And, you know, obviously he learned Japanese because he was growing up in the country. And so he had ties to Japan. During World War II, he fled to China. And his family set up a trading company in China called Taitung, which is the Chinese word for Far East. Mm -hmm. And they were largely doing hair products. They were using hog bristles for brushes, and they were making wigs. I think they made some rugs as well. They were largely involved in that. And they were doing this out of Shanghai. Then, of course, after World War II, China fell to the communists. Right. And so they're on the move again, and they go back to Japan. 
And when Michael Kogan gets back to Japan, he continues his Far East trading company. Far East in Chinese is Taitung. In Japanese, it's Taito. Hmm. And so this is the beginning of Taito, which I think most video game fans would be very aware of. <laughs> it was a trading company, so it was an import-export kind of business. And he started bringing in vending machines, peanut vending machines, perfume vending machines. This kind of got him into the coin-op business. He came to Japan in 1950. I think technically the company was going on then, though it wasn't incorporated until 1953. Taito always celebrates its anniversary as being in as its founding date as being in 1953. I think technically it was older than that, but that's the incorporation date, so that's what they go with. Right. And so he was doing a bunch of things. He was import-export business, vending machines. He even had a vodka distillery going. At some point, he decided he wanted to get into the jukebox business, uh, further into the coin-op business that he was already in a little bit with the vending machines. And he wanted to import jukeboxes from the United States. But at this time, that was not possible because imports were very severely restricted. Japan is still struggling with its basic economic situation, and they don't want imports and, and the money thereof being wasted on what they call luxury goods. Right. We want to spend the money we have in order to rebuild and shore things up. Exactly. So he was unable to get any kind of permission to import jukeboxes from the United States. So what he did is he went to the military bases in Japan instead and said, look, you've got older jukeboxes that you're getting rid of that maybe have broken down, that you're just piling up someplace or destroying or whatever. Give those to me and I'll take them off your hands cheap. And then he would have his people kind of fix them up. And it would often take maybe three or four jukeboxes to make one working jukebox because he was taking machines that were all banged up and old and what have you. But he was able in this way to create jukeboxes or refurbish jukeboxes and put them then in the local Japanese economy. Thus bypassing the whole import thing because he's just taking what's effectively junk and already there. And who cares if it takes me four machines to make one working machine? I at least have a jukebox in Japan that's an entertainment, and if I'm the only show in town, I dominate it. Exactly. And the jukebox business remained small in these early days. Oh, By 1960, I think there were only some 1,500 jukeboxes in all of Japan, to put that in perspective, in the United States, which, of course, is many times bigger than Japan right. in terms of land area. But at that point in the United States, there were half a million jukeboxes. <laughs> or more lying around in Japan, 1500, even with the disparity in geography and population. Right. That still shows that the jukebox was nowhere near as popular in Japan as it was in the United States. But again, at that point, he was just about the only show in town. So he had a nice business going with that. He even considered going into production on his own jukebox in 1956. He had one designed, but discovered that the cost of building it relative to the demand in the country, which was still rather small, just didn't make it cost-effective. So he kept using his refurbished machines. Then finally, in 1958, when the economy was doing better, he was able to secure a license with AMI, which was one of the big jukebox makers, and start bringing over... Modern, his, newer ones. Exactly. And then a couple of years after that, he made a deal with Seberg, which was the 
premier jukebox company. It was the number one jukebox company for many, many years in the United States. And so he was bringing in new jukeboxes at that point once the economy got a little better. So Taito was the first company to kind of get involved in coin-operated entertainment outside of Pachinko in -hmm. Japan. Now, they were not doing amusements. Amusements was a sector that was started by David Rosen, and we talked about Rosen Enterprises last time, and we talked about how he brought the second-hand arcade machines in. Right. And again, you know, he was doing this, you know, 1956, 1957, so a few years after... Michael Kogan started his jukebox business. So by this time, you could get the import licenses and you could bring in. He was bringing in used equipment at first. But the important thing is he was able to import it because Michael Kogan couldn't have even imported a used jukebox if he had wanted to in 1954. You you couldn't import anything. Any luxury goods. Any luxury goods. Exactly. So you've got Rosen Enterprises starting up with this game business in about 1956, 1957. Taito follows them into the market 1957, 1958, very soon after Rosen starts bringing in these games. Taito starts doing the same thing. Then you've also got the service games complex, which we've talked about at length the last time around, which is not very involved in games, but is bringing in jukeboxes. Mm -hmm. They become the Rockola distributor, which is another one of the major jukebox companies. So... Taito and Service Games are kind of dominating Japan's jukebox business between them. Sega has a little over half of it. Taito has most of the rest. Rosen Enterprises in the late 50s is starting to create the first dedicated game spaces in the country. And as we talked about before, he's approaching primarily movie theaters because he already had a relationship with movie theaters due to his photorama business, which again, we talked about previously. So he's creating what are called gun corners in Japan at this time. Firearms are illegal. Firearms are very, very heavily restricted. Right. Even air guns, even less uh, destructive forms of guns are very, very heavily restricted. You can't even do like BB guns or anything. Yeah, exactly. So target shooting uh, down at the old rifle range or the old gun range is not something that the Japanese are able to do. So these gun corners become popular because it's an outlet to do some target shooting. And in fact, but how how can even they get guns or some sort of special license because they have a gun corner? Oh, well, these aren't guns. I'm sorry. We're talking about arcade amusements. So we're talking about light gun games. Light guns. Okay. I'm sorry. No, I was not clear about that. So coin-operated amusements, your light gun games are legal because they're not actual guns. They don't actually fire a projectile. They're not even, I mean, they're even less of of a deal than an air gun, which is even at some point outlawed in Japan or at least heavily restricted in Japan. But you can do target shooting with them. Okay, how do those light guns work? Is it sort of like how the Nintendo light gun works or something else? Actually, it was sort of the exact opposite of the way that something like the NES Zapper worked. With the NES Zapper, you have a photocell of some kind in the light gun that is responding to light on your video game, and that's the way it registers a hit. When you're talking about the old electromechanical games, when there was no screen and no light like that, there would actually be a vacuum tube that was light-sensitive, a special light-sensitive vacuum tube on the target, 
and then your gun itself would shoot the beam of light, and when that light-sensitive vacuum tube would register that hit of the light from the light gun, then it would register that your target had been hit, and it might do something to the target, like cause a propeller to spin, or cause a duck to fall out of the sky, or some special effect like that. So... Light guns were a socially acceptable and legal way to engage in some target shooting, which is a pastime that the Japanese were still interested in, but they just couldn't do any other way. So there was a real emphasis on shooting games. That was probably the most popular type of coin-operated game in Japan. There was pinball as well. It's, I think, a little less popular just because of pachinko. Mm -hmm. And in fact... You have to be careful when you read sources, translated sources from Japanese, because the Japanese often call pachinko pinball. So if a Japanese source, even in English, is talking about pinball, they're probably actually talking about pachinko. Oh, okay. If they say flipper game, then, they mean... then they're talking about what we call pinball. Okay. They call those flipper machines. They call pachinko also pinball. One of those interchangeable words where the word for the original product sort of becomes a coverall for the entire genre of whatever it is. Say Kleenex, which used to be a company, or it is a company, but everyone refers to tissues as Kleenex. Or sure. Xerox, go Xerox this. Xerox is the company that invented the photocopier, but we now just use go Xerox this as interchangeably for making a photocopy. Sort of like even now, we got go do an internet search, it's come, go Google that. Exactly. So there's a little, just a little bit different terminology, but gun games are very, very popular. And there are a few driving games. There is some pinball, and pinball starts becoming more popular starting around 1962 when Taito becomes the official distributor for Gottlieb pinballs. So Sega, I should say Service Games, has the rights to bring in games from uh, Bally and from Williams. Taito's bringing in games from Gottlieb. And Service Games is not running arcades. Rosen Enterprises is running arcades. Okay. Taito is also running arcades. And they get into it kind of... They follow the exact same path, essentially, that Rosen Enterprises followed, except Rosen Enterprises did it first, and then Taito's kind of following in their footsteps. So Taito is opening arcades. Rosen Enterprises is opening arcades. Sega is, well, I keep saying Sega, it's service games, but even by then they have the Sega brand name. So just for ease of use, I'll keep calling them Sega. Sega right. is importing jukeboxes and manufacturing slot machines and importing some coin-operated games, but they're not actually running arcades per se in Japan. The game centers at this point are pretty much always attached to some existing business. Okay. Rosen is setting up his gun corners in movie theaters. Along with the photo booth. Exactly, where he had previously been setting up his photo booths. The photo business is kind of dying off at this point. In the kind of late 1960s, there's a big retail boom in Japan, department stores, supermarkets, etc., popping up all over the place. So department stores, shopping centers, the supermarkets, Japanese shopping arcade, exactly, are often going to have these establishments in them as well, in a little portion of it. Maybe a train station will have one. Many of these are very small. Some of them start becoming large. 
Taito opened what was kind of recognized as the first larger Japanese game center in 1960. Had about 40 games in it, just to give kind of the example of the scale of what they would call a large game center then. Right. And rooftops, department store rooftops, are hosting games again as they had been before the war. But it's an ancillary business. The game center is attached to something. There's not this idea of the independent game center or arcade that is a destination all unto itself, like the Sportsland in 1930s New York, or like the American shopping mall arcade. There is no structure that is dedicated 100% to entertainment. It is usually in something that you add on to a movie theater, something you add on to the mall, much like how it is now in the United States, where there's no really dedicated fun land outside of a few different very special still hanging on places. Right, like Dave and Buster's. Like Dave and Buster's. But you still have a little arcade thing tacked onto a movie theater. You can pretty much still go into most malls now and still find a small arcade. Mm-hmm. But But the arcades would be run by the same people that were bringing the games in from the United States. And this was kind of an important way that the Japanese arcade industry differed very greatly from the American industry. And I think it's as much a matter of geography as anything. In the United States, there's really a three-tiered system in the arcade industry. You have manufacturers that make the games. Mm -hmm. Then they sell them along to distributors who kind of have the sales infrastructure in place. They can be national, but they're more often regional. So they're kind of directly dialed in to the, the local economy. And then they sell on to operators who tend to control a large number of games on a route in multiple locations. So they'll have all the games in this arcade here, then they'll also control all the games in these five bars, these three restaurants, these two movie theaters, going back and forth, servicing the games, taking the coin drop, etc. So you kind of have this three-tier system, manufacturer, distributor, operator. Mm -hmm. In Japan, because the industry develops differently, the people bringing over the games, like Taito and Rosen Enterprises, are also the people operating the arcades because they were building the industry from scratch. There are no operators. Exactly. Rosen was bringing over his own equipment to operate his own equipment. And since in Japan, these kind of entertainments are kind of constrained to a few very dense urban areas, as opposed to the United States, where you have the dense urban areas, but then you also have miles and miles and miles and miles of small towns where you need somebody just dedicated to driving their truck back and forth between all of these little places to keep things in operations. Japan, being an island and being densely urban, is far more compact. So a company like Sega or Rosen Enterprises or Taito can more easily handle everything going on in the country. They don't need to pass along their wares to separate operators. They can handle everything within the city or a couple of cities, and there's enough clientele there in order to get them all the money they need exactly because the games are concentrated in the cities and they're also concentrated in arcades even though those arcades those game centers are attached to another business you didn't really have the situation like you have in the united states where in this time period 
just about every bar has a pool table, two pinball tables, and a cigarette vending machine. So you have to go around all the bars in town to service all that equipment because everyone's got them. Whereas in Japan, the amusement equipment is pretty much consolidated in these game centers because, of course, it's children's entertainment. We talked uh, earlier about how adults aren't supposed to be playing these kind of things. So, of course, there aren't pinball machines in bars because yeah. you're not supposed to be you're playing You're lucky them. if you have a p- pachinko machine on a bar. Exactly. Now, there are jukeboxes in bars, so it's not like there are no coin-operated machines anywhere around, but not the games. And so these companies do their own distributing and operating. And as time went on, there were a few companies that developed as well that were just operators or just distributors slash operators, but only a small number. Most of the arcades still today in Japan are controlled by Sega and Namco and Taito and all of these same companies. In the mid-1960s, as the Japanese coin-op industry gets bigger Mm -hmm. and equipment from the United States is no longer enough to meet the local demand, these distributors decide that they're going to start making their own equipment locally. So, again, the distributor, Taito, or in Sega Enterprises, which at this point is that merged company between Surface Games and Rosen Enterprises, these distributors, who are also operators, now start manufacturing two. So they can encompass all three. Exactly. There is no three-tiered system. There are certainly some companies that are just operators that don't actually build their own games, but all of the major manufacturers also own tons and tons of arcades, and that is different from the way it developed in the United States. Now, in the United States, during the 70s and 80s, there was a lot of blurring of the lines where companies like Atari and Namco and Sega and Bally were buying arcade chains. Aladdin's Castle, which was the most ubiquitous arcade chain in the 70s and 80s, was owned by Bally, which Mm -hmm. is a manufacturer. Bally also owned Empire Distributing, which was one of the largest distributors in the country. So even in the United States, the industry began to conglomerize a bit and you had more blurring of the lines between distributors and operators and manufacturers. But that three-tier system never went away entirely. Even though Bally owned some of its own distributorships, it also sold along to independent distributorships as well. And even though they owned Aladdin's Castles arcades or Sega owned Time Out arcades or Namco owned arcades, there were still plenty of arcades they didn't own too. So that system was still a very vibrant system. There was just some blurring. Whereas in Japan, the manufacturers did everything. Did everything. And they distribute games to competitors' arcades as well, but the manufacturer is also the distributor is also the operator. So that's, that's one of the big distinctions. So just to kind of recap where we are so far, Japanese amusement industry gets started in the late 1950s with the importing of American equipment. It grows big enough by the mid-1960s that companies like Sega and Taito are starting to manufacture their own equipment. This really starts taking off because of bowling. Bowling. That's correct. So... I do not typically think of Japan as being a big bowling place. 
in the 1960s, bowling became absolutely huge in Japan. It ended up being a passing fad. And Rosen Enterprises actually played a role in that. The very first bowling alley in Japan was established about 1952 uh, in Tokyo. But it really just catered to American servicemen. And you see, throughout the 1950s, there was a big bowling boom going on in the United States. So Japanese military bases had bowling. So there was a realization in the Japanese amusement industry that bowling was this thing that existed, but it had never really caught on in Japan. Rosen Enterprises, David Rosen, decided to open a bowling alley in about 1960, 1961, somewhere in there, that ended up becoming really popular. And then two of Japan's leading trading companies, C. Ito and Mitsui, partnered with the two leading American bowling companies, AMF and Brunswick, bowling equipment companies, and started opening bowling alleys in Japan in the mid-60s. And bowling, Japan went crazy for it. I mean, I don't know what the psychology is there. I don't know the reasons why, but Japan went very crazy for bowling for about a period of eight or ten years. Wow. Mid-60s to the early 70s. Lanes opening all over the country. And I imagine all these bowling centers also had arcades in them as well. Exactly. And that's kind of the point where you started seeing this intense demand for arcade games. They were still a secondary entertainment to the real thing going on bowling, just like they were secondary to movie theaters, secondary to department stores, secondary to supermarkets, etc. Mm -hmm. But there were over 2,000 bowling alleys opened in Japan. I mean, Japan's a small place. That's a lot of bowling alleys. And bowling alleys are pretty freaking big. Exactly, which is probably part of the reason why they couldn't ultimately sustain the bowling boom, especially after the uh, oil shock in 1973. And as these bowling alleys spread across the country, so too did coin-operated amusement spread around the country. And as more and more bowling centers were opening, this led to more and more demand for arcade games. And this is what kind of started pushing companies like Taito and Rosen Enterprises, Sega Enterprises at this point, to begin manufacturing their own equipment. Okay, so if really what happened is you had the genesis of arcade machines in Japan where they just start taking old stuff and making it work. And then it's really not until the point that you get bowling alleys and that becoming this big major fad for a decade that you have arcade machines really coming to every facet of Japanese life. It's hitting the entire country. It's not hitting just the major cities and major parts of those cities. It's seeming to be penetrating the entire culture as a whole. Mm -hmm. It's starting to at this point. But arcades are always still this subservient institution. You know, it's never the primary entertainment venue. They're pachinko halls. Mm -hmm. You know, as we said before, pachinko's doing great. And there are pachinko halls everywhere. Tons and tons of them. Game centers are always attached to another business. That's just kind of the way it is. Until 1971. What happened in 1971 is a guy came along by the name of Katsuki Manabe. Mm -hmm. Katsuki Manabe founded a company called Sigma Enterprises, which became a major, major player in the Japanese arcade scene. They never established a U.S. presence to speak of at all. So Sigma, unlike 
Sega or Namco or Taito or Konami, etc. Sigma is not a name that is really known by the, the general American game playing public. They only service Japan. Right, and they're gone now. In uh, 2000, I think it was, Universal, which is not the movie studio, but is a Japanese pachinko company called Universal that also made some video games for a while. Universal purchased Sigma and absorbed them into their operations. So Sigma no longer exists in Japan anymore either. Sigma was a very big operator uh, and also made some games for a long time in Japan. And it was founded by this guy, Minabi. And he was very determined to break arcade games out of this subservient role that they had previously existed in. And he decided to do so through creating a new type of establishment based around a new kind of game. And this is something called the metal game. Metal is in a metal for valor, valor you know, M-E-D-A-L. Hmm. And the metal game is basically a slot machine. It's a one-armed bandit. Really? But it doesn't take money. And it doesn't pay out money. It takes tokens? It takes medals, which are essentially tokens. But okay. they called them medals. And so that's why they were called metal games. He opened an establishment in 1971 called Game Fantasia Milano. I think the Milano thing, you know, it's Italian from the city of Milan. I think it's kind of evoking Europe. It's kind of evoking kind of a, a casino type setting. Not that Milan's known for its casinos, but the idea of this kind of gaming facility, he lavished lots of money on the furnishings of the place and on staff and on all of these things made it this destination hmm. because that's what that's what you need i mean the arcade in the united states revived when the sportland was able to turn arcade games into a destination all on their own and this is again what he's doing he's creating this very fancy facility with this brand spanking new type of game and trying to make it into a destination because he wants to cut arcade games loose from being subservient to all of these other types of entertainment, like movies or bowling. The metal game becomes huge in Japan. Again, this is not something that, that was ever a thing in the United States, because gambling being legal in the United States, we have slot machines. We don't have fake slot machines made for people that aren't allowed to use real slot machines. <laughs> not the, quite, but I, I mean, the closest we have here is at least with some of the old arcades, you'd always go in there with your $10 bill you put into a machine in order to get that token for a specific venue. Chuck E. Cheese's used to do this a lot. Oh, Probably sure. still do. And you have a token that's specific for them, and that I would argue that would be a medal, right? Well, in a way, I mean, we have redemption games in the United States. I mean, the medal game is a form of redemption game, but they were never in the guise of slot machines. A metal game is a slot machine that just doesn't take money. Okay. Otherwise, it's exactly the same. And in fact, as metal games became popular, companies like Taito were importing every single slot machine, real slot machine, they could get their hands on and then converting them into metal games because the demand was so huge. A couple thousand of these metal game centers opened in Japan. So what did they do with the winnings? 
Do they go to? Well, there are like no winnings. A... There's no. There's no payout. Well, I mean, yeah. I mean, you could maybe exchange for a prize, you know, like a redemption game. But I mean, it's not. There's no cash prize. There's no payout. Okay, so you. There, so you but, were playing an effectively a one-armed bandit with metals. I put in a. I go, bought, change a couple thousand yen into metals. I put it in. I may gain or lose the amount of metals I have. I may or may not be able to take those medals to a counter and say, get some sort of prize. Yeah, they they called them in shorthand. They called them Mimo games. Metal in, metal out. Mimo. There's a thought that actually occurred to me with that. Um, you and I have both played Dragon Warrior a lot. Mm-hmm. And there is a casino game that was introduced to that, I think, in Dragon Quest 3 or Dragon Quest 4. Dragon Quest 4. Dragon Quest 4. And... In there, you go in, you change your money into the casino equivalent of tokens, and you can't cash out into money. You can either keep playing games in there, or you can cash it out at a game, a uh, a prize counter, right. where you get special things. It almost makes me wonder if that sort of setup there is influenced by this. That's very possible. I mean, that would make a lot of sense. So... The metal game facilities were not arcades. They were not uh, general amusement arcades. Metal game facilities, just like Pachinko Halls hosted Pachinko Machines, metal game facilities basically just hosted metal games. But this was kind of the first coin-operated amusement that had its own dedicated space that was not tied to any other form of business. These peaked in popularity sometime around 1973, 1974. After that, the government started cracking down on them a little harder because, again, we're in a very gray area that's getting a little close to gambling. Mm -hmm. So there starts to be crackdowns, and these kind of fall out of favor. But this was an important moment when the game center culture in Japan kind of started to mature a Mm -hmm. little bit was when these metal game... Between the 70s and the 80s. Well, this is the early 70s, 1971 to 1973. Okay, so only in the early 70s. Mm-hmm. Okay. So around this time is when video games start taking off in the United States for the first time. Pong hits big in 1973. Japan, at least in this time period, is always just a little bit behind the United States. Yeah, I think we brought that up before. We did. Pong comes into Japan in 1973. And both Taito and Sega clone it. Mm -hmm. But the expertise in Japan is still very much in electromechanical games. There isn't the kind of engineering expertise that they need to create these sophisticated electronic games, these uh, TTL hardware games. So not much goes on in that field for the first few years. At this point, the big four companies in Japan are Sega, which is by far the biggest, Mm -hmm. Taito, which we've talked about, a company called Nakamura Manufacturing Corporation, or company, Nakamura Manufacturing Company, which later shortens its name to Namco, (laughs) and a company called Casco, which never really made the transition very effectively to video games. So again, that's not a company that's really known today in the United States, but Casco and the Electromechanical Day was a pretty big deal. And all of these companies are pretty much just making electromechanical games. They offer a full range of games, driving, shooting, etc. 
Pinball is the one thing that they mostly import. In 1972, Sega actually starts its own homegrown pinball operation as well to try to become a full-service coin-operated amusement company. But generally speaking, they import their pinballs from the United States, from companies like Gottlieb and Bally, and manufacture most of the other stuff domestically. They do some export business, some Sega and Taito and Namco and Casco games make it out of the country, uh, especially Sega. But it's largely a domestic business, with just a little bit of, of exporting. Mm-hmm. And uh, in video games, only Sega and Taito are making video games, and they're making very few. Sega really just clones Pong and then really doesn't do anything else until they open an American branch in 1975. And through that American branch, they hire some people that are more skilled with the electronics and start making a small number of video games that way. Taito happened to have a single individual on staff, Tomohiro Nishikado, who is the father of Space Invaders, who happened to have training in electronics. So they happened to have a guy that could do it. And so he was their video game designer between about 73 and 78. He (laughs) did most of their video games. They did finally, in the middle of the decade, open a video game, a new subsidiary that also did some video games. But he was kind of the primary guy. No one else in Japan is making video games. There are a couple of games that do decently in Japan, but it's still very much an electromechanical market at this point, or and a metal game market, especially mm. for this period, 71, 72, 73. You know, so it's pachinko, metal games, and... Driving, shooting, electromechanical stuff, a little bit of pinball. That's basically what it is. And then Breakout happens. The video game Breakout. The video game Breakout. Nakamura Manufacturing is not creating video games, but in 1974, they become the distributor in Japan for Atari. Hmm. Basically, Atari founded its own Japanese subsidiary in 1973, and it was an absolute disaster. They didn't do anything right. They didn't get uh, the—Japan is very hard to set up a— foreign subsidiary and there's lots of rules they usually require you to partner with a local company and atari basically ignored all of that went full speed ahead founded their own subsidiary hired their own people went about doing it their own way and lost half a million dollars because they couldn't sell anything because they hadn't made any of the proper contacts they couldn't get any of their games out of customs we've already established that japan is very collectivist in the sense that they go for whoever is the clear winner and the winner will get 90% or more of the market. Well, that's true in the home. In the arcade, there's room for for multiple companies. The problem here wasn't so much that they were a clear loser. The problem was is they didn't set up the subsidiary correctly. They didn't follow the rules for importing product. They didn't make any ties with any local distributors. They just, they broke all the rules and that's not going to work in Japan. Were they shunned by different companies? Oh, absolutely. Or? Okay. Absolutely they were. And they so no get... one would buy. They were completely shunned, even though they could get the product in. Well, they couldn't even get the product in most of the time. That's what I'm saying. Oftentimes okay. it was held up in customs because they didn't follow any of the rules on importing their equipment. Okay. So, okay. I'm, I'm just trying to fully understand the, sure. so, the, the depths of the horror. So it was a complete and utter disaster. 
and they had to sell and they sold Atari Japan to Masaya Nakamura of Nakamura Manufacturing Company. And so he became the importer of Atari games in Japan. That made Nakamura, soon to be renamed Namco, the kind of third big company in the video game scene in Japan, such as the video game scene was. Right. In 1976, Breakout is released in the United States, and you're familiar with the game Breakout, I assume. Yeah, of course. You've got a ball on the bottom that is attached to a paddle. You click start, the ball launches up, and there's usually a couple of rows of blocks, and you hit them. They get destroyed, and it comes back down. you got to get your paddle within range of the ball and then bounce it back up. It's almost like you're trying to keep a ball in the air long enough and not go past your paddle and destroy all the blocks on the top. Exactly. And in 1977, Namco imported this game into Japan. And for whatever reason, again, I don't know exactly what, it became huge. Just like bowling. Yes, exactly. It just took the nation by storm. And Nakamura actually had a problem because it was so popular that it was attracting the Yakuza. And the Yakuza were starting to create their own counterfeit machines and starting to get into the business. And then when Nakamura went to the local Yakuza head and complained, he was like, well, go into business with us and we'll make all the counterfeiters go away. <laughs> and it's like Nakamura did not take that deal. He didn't want to be in bed with the Yakuza. And he couldn't get more units from Atari. So he actually started manufacturing his own units, which was in violation of his licensing agreement. Oh, dear. But he felt he had no choice. It was either that or lose all his business to the Yakuza. Hmm. Breakout starts proliferating across the country. And this is the exact moment that another fad comes in that is equally important to the spread of these games. And that's the tabletop cabinet. Instead of having your video game in an upright cabinet that you stand at with a monitor kind of at eye level while you're standing... It's a game where the monitor is embedded in a table and you sit down at a table and play it that way. Some of the old Pac-Mans are like that. Exactly. In the United States, they are. Yeah. There were many games like that in Japan. What would be the advantage of that over the upright? You said that there's a space premium. I would think a table on the ground would take up more space than a cabinet against a wall. So here's what happened. In the mid-1970s, the jukebox was under siege from a new pastime called karaoke. Oh, dear. And Taito did get into the karaoke machine business, but Taito was still very big in jukeboxes. That's kind of where their big business was. And now the jukebox was becoming less desirable in bars, tea houses, snack bars, all the places you would typically find a jukebox. So Taito needed a new machine that they could put into bars and restaurants and tea houses. And so they came up with the idea of let's put a video game in a table so it can be a table in the restaurant and it's inobtrusive. It doesn't draw attention to itself because it's just another table and it's a place where a person can sit and have some tea or have a snack and play a game at the table. Okay, so that's a bit different than 
how it is in the United States where you have those tables literally in an arcade and they just sort of look out of place compared to everything else. Yeah. These are actually supposed to be inside the booth and part of where you're eating. You go over there, you sit down, you eat your food, and you look down and go, oh, there's Galga, there's right. Asteroids, there's Pac-Man. Let's play around while uh, we enjoy our food. Right, because remember, at this point still, we don't have really, other than metal games, we don't really have dedicated arcade spaces in Japan. Japan In Japan, arcades are still part of a separate business. So this was a way of getting games into tea houses and into snack bars that would not ordinarily accept games and which are now no longer accepting jukeboxes in the same numbers they used to because of karaoke. Mm -hmm. So Taito comes up with this tabletop idea. That's what they call them, TT for tabletop. And Breakout becomes popular, really popular, at the exact same time Taito comes up with this tabletop idea. And of course, Taito knocks off Breakout, you know, makes their own clone of it. Right. And this combination takes the country by storm. Taito figured that the typical establishment would order one table, maybe two tables. Some establishments were replacing everything with <laughs> game tables. Wow. And they had breakout in the tabletop games. Exactly. They had other games, too. Just about any game in their catalog, they would also make in a tabletop version. It's just that breakout was the killer app for the tabletop. Okay. It was the game that was really popular at the exact moment that someone came up with the idea of doing a tabletop. So you have two forces converging. Namco imports Breakout, which becomes super popular. Taito comes up with the idea of the tabletop game as a way of replacing their dwindling jukebox business. And then, of course, these two things come together. And this gets arcade games in large numbers into tea houses and snack bars and creates a brief fad uh, with young people that frequent these tea houses and snack bars. And represents kind of the next step in growing the market. So we went from a few movie theater and department store arcades to tons of bowling alleys until that fad passed to metal games take off and have their own dedicated facilities until mm -hmm. that fad passed. And then the fad that replaced them is tabletop games, particularly breakout in tea houses and snack bars and similar establishments. So now we're on the cusp of the modern Japanese game center. And what pushes it over the, the top is when our friend Tomohiro Nishikado at Taito is sitting around thinking about his next game. And he's thinking about Breakout. Right. And Breakout's really popular right now. Why is it popular? It's popular because of the sense of progression, the sense of clearing the screen of obstacles. And it's especially satisfying when you kind of knock out one corner of the screen and then get a shot just right so that your ball gets right up in the top and gets trapped. Oh, yeah, and it just starts bouncing against the top and you're pretty much destroying it from the other direction. Exactly. And this is what's really popular. So... What if we pull this out of the abstract? What if instead of having a paddle, we have a little artillery gun or a little spaceship? Mm -hmm. And what if instead of a ball, we have lasers? And what if instead of 
a monolithic row of blocks, we have several rows of invading aliens. And thus, we get space invaders. Exactly, which is derived from breakout of all things. Breakout. Breakout leads to... Space invaders! Space invaders was popular in the United States. Space invaders sold about 55 to 60,000 cabinets in the United States, which was an unheard of number of cabinets for an arcade game at that time. In Japan, when you add together all of the Space Invaders clones, there were two to 300,000 Space Invaders cabinets and Space Invaders clones in Japan at the height of what they called the Invader craze. A much smaller country, much more densely populated country, which in theory, therefore, would not need as many machines because the population can more easily find a machine if they want one. Right. 200 to 300,000 machines. That's insane. It seems like these fads in Japan are are so monolithic to the (laughs) culture that it just completely devastates everything else. You've got bowling, completely devastates it, and it spreads across everything. you got these metal games, takes everything out, spreads across everything. Break out in tabletop games, taking out everything, and now you got Space Invaders. And Space Invaders was bigger than any of that other stuff, much bigger than Breakout. And Space Invaders was, of course, released in a tabletop version, too. So it's part of this continuing table game boom, too. But Space Invaders is, of course, unlike anything that's ever been seen before. There were target shooting games before Space Invaders. There was never a target shooting game where the enemy shot back. Hmm... Technically, Computer Space was a game where the AI shot back at you, and there was the game Jet Fighter that Atari also did, which you could play against the computer. But those were one-on-one kind of games. And there were dueling games like Gunfight and Tank and the like, where two human players would shoot at each other. It's not like you never had someone firing back at you before, but you never had a wide array of enemy targets that you had to shoot before they shot you. That was brand new, something we take for granted in video games today. Brand new in 1978. You had an entire multi-row, each of them shooting down at you. You occasionally had sort of like a flying saucer go across the top, and it would shoot a special thing down at you, and you really wanted to take it out before it was gone because you get bonuses usually. And as the invaders disappear, they get faster, and then it had that just little, very little musical cue that, would speed up and it would just become more tense, more intense. Dun 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 And so it was thrilling in a way a video game had never been thrilling before. It really got that adrenaline pumping. It was the first real action shooting shoot 'em up shmup kind of game and it was huge taito put all their manufacturing capacity on building space invaders games they still couldn't meet demand so they sub-licensed space invaders to four or five other companies (laughs) 
And then, of course, there were other companies that made unauthorized versions of the game that were either exact clones or just with minor tweaks. Right. And then you had even uh, other derivatives that were less clones that had more advances, like Galaxian, which had better animation and better colors and faster gameplay. And, of course, that led later on to Galaga. Right. And it's this entire culture. And now arcade games are so huge in Japan that you're getting your first dedicated arcades. You're getting store owners that are saying, why should I sell fruits and vegetables? Or why should I keep running a tea house when I can put 10 Space Invaders cabinets in my little storefront and just rake in the 100 yen coins? It's more profitable for me to just be the go-to place for all of your Space Invader needs as opposed to me selling you vegetables where, let's see, it comes back before to return on investment. If it costs me 500 yen to bring in vegetables versus, say, 2,000 yen to put in an arcade machine and my vegetables sell in five hours and my arcade machine is raking in... 700 yen every hour. Hmm. Which one do I want? Everything's magnified, but you get the idea. And for the longest time, small Japanese arcades were called invader houses. <laughs> because that was the game that started it. And they called it the invader craze. They spoke of the invader game. And when the Japanese speak of the invader game, they're talking about both space invaders and all of its clones. It was, it was its own genre. The Invader game was a genre, and the Invader house was where you went to play Invader games, or you went to a snack bar or a tea house to play a tabletop game or whatever, and it was ridiculously huge. And this this is the biggest phenomenon to ever hit Japanese arcades, really. Pac-Man was popular in, in Japan as well, but in the United States, Pac-Man was more popular than Space Invaders. In right. Japan, Pac-Man was also popular, but... Space Invaders was the one. That was the video game craze of Japan. All right. There was even... There's a myth that there was a shortage of 100 yen coins that the Japanese government actually had to increase production of 100 yen coins because <laughs> so many of them were going into machines. That's not true. That's one of these urban legends. But it has a grain of truth because apparently there was concern that coins were not entering circulation fast enough and the Japanese diet did actually contact Taito. I got this from Ed Miller, who was the president of Taito America at the time and who was also very involved in the operation in Japan as well. He said, he told me that the Japanese diet did come to negotiate with Taito to get coins out of machines faster because of course Taito, as we said, the manufacturer is also the operator. So Taito is operating these machines as well as manufacturing them. Uh, so there was enough of a concern about turnaround on coins that the Diet insisted that Taito get them out of machines faster. But there was not actually a shortage that required increasing production. It's funny that that rumor even got started because it's public record what the production of Japanese currency was every year. So all you have to do is look at those records of Japanese currency production. You can see that production didn't increase three or fourfold like some video game history sources claim. Well, it's like many things. A lie will run around the world before it 
the truth to even get to choose on. Exactly. I think what happened is that there was concern about coin turnaround. And when the American press started hyping space invaders, they got confused between coin turnaround and coin shortages. And it ended up being a bigger story. But there's no doubting how huge space invaders was. And that was kind of the real birth of the Japanese game center as we know it today. That's fantastic. <laughs> well, that's pretty much the beginning of the Japanese game center right up to 1980. Uh, where do we want to go from here, Alex? Well, now that we've spent a couple of episodes on arcade issues and have generally spent more time on console than just about anything else I think maybe we should go back to home computers again and we spent a lot of time a couple episodes ago talking about Electronic Arts and how that company came to be and in the 1980s Electronic Arts's biggest competition in the home computer space just in terms of pure dollar volume came from Activision which during this period had to transition from console to home computer due to the video game crash of 1983 and the Activision story in this period is very interesting and very misunderstood. This is the period when the company became mediagenic and expanded into new markets like business software and ultimately entered bankruptcy. And most of the time when Activision is discussed, there's a lot of attention paid to the early days of the company when they were the leading third-party developer on the Atari VCS. There's plenty of attention paid to Bobby Kotick's version of the company still going on today as Activision Blizzard, which has moved from strength to strength in many ways and has become a very big and successful company and just got even bigger with the purchase of King a month or so back. So this middle period tends to be neglected except to say that Activision made some mistakes and it went into bankruptcy. And that's one of the things that I'm hoping to correct. And I've actually interviewed a lot of people that were there at that time, including the CEO at that time, Bruce Davis. And I think it would be interesting to explore Activision as computer game developer and Activision as mediagenic and what they did right, what they didn't do right. And was Bruce Davis really as bad as everyone says he was? And how much was his fault? And how much was the fault of other things? And... Just a, a lot there, I think. So perhaps the history of Mediagenic for next time. Sounds good to me. And we will see you next time on They Create Worlds. Check out our show notes at tcwpodcast.podbean.com where we have links to some of the things that we discuss in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com Email us at tcwpodcast at gmail.com and follow us on Twitter at tcwpodcast. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward. Found at joshwoodward.com forward slash airplane mode. Used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Rollum Music. Found at freemusicarchive.org used under a Creative Commons attribution license.